You're listening to the Ranch Church Podcast. For more information and service times, go to ranchchurch.com. I think the Lord had this in mind. Uh, my verse, we're, we're still in the series, the, uh, the great verses of the Bible, and I didn't go with the one that was outlined for me to go on, because all week the Lord was putting 2 Corinthians 12, 9 on my heart, and it says, my grace is sufficient for you, or my grace is sufficient for you, for my powers made perfect in weakness. And these people in, in Maui right now, I can't imagine, they are in a position of weakness, and I happen to believe the Lord's power is dwelling there. And I want to be a part of that, however we can, Brian and Michael. Thank you guys so much. Thank you. Uh, again, uh, if, if you have your Bibles, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and I'll, I'll work through uh, verses 1 through 10, but uh, the, the crux of my message is verse 9. And so what do you think of when you read that, that my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Power and weakness? I think that flies in the face of man's logic. God's logic doesn't make sense, I, I don't think, to, to the age that we live in, because the age that we live in says that uh, we are most useful when we're the most powerful. We're the most useful and we're the most powerful. When we've overcome all our challenges, uh, when in this never-ending war against evil, we're on the right side of that battle, decidedly so. Um, maybe when our families, our friends, our neighbors see us and they're all, oh, there's a very strong individual right there. That's what our society says is power. I think the Apostle Paul would argue with this. I, I, I really do. Um, let, me, let me rearrange some because I want to read. I'm going to read just a, a little bit here. Uh, and in Scripture, at least as I see Scripture, I see in Paul's ministry that usefulness and weakness are mutual companions all throughout his ministry, usefulness and weakness. And again, I, I wonder if our 21st century, not only society, but if our church could learn something very valuable from this first century apostle. I think we can. I'm gonna get into the word and I'm gonna read the section, but let me open us in prayer. So Lord, it's with a heart of contrition we come before you, Lord, and uh, we definitely pray for those folks in Maui, Lord. And I pray, even today, Lord, I know there's people that are hurting right here, right now. I pray your word is a comfort to them. Touch them with your Holy Spirit in a unique way, Lord, that they wouldn't just read this section of scripture, but they would live it. Yes. Empower your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. It says exactly this, chapter 12. I must go on boasting, Although there is nothing to be gained, I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. 
And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise. He heard inexpressible things, things that man is not permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain so that no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say. To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. For when I am weak, I am strong. The whole message and the place we are in the Bible, Paul is actually writing in response to accusations, to insinuations made about him by false teachers. They were actually challenging Paul's authority as a true apostle. And uh, in fact, Paul sarcastically calls these guys, these false teachers, super apostles. If you look at verse 11, uh, you'll see Paul calling them super apostles. And I guess I like that because anyone that says Paul doesn't have a sense of humor is not reading the Bible. He's, he's so sarcastic. Yes, yeah, super apostles, these guys. But actually, where we are in 12, you need to go through chapters 10 and 11 to kind of understand what Paul's talking about. I don't expect you to do that, but maybe in your free time, after you go home today, take a look. But I've picked out just a few things that these detractors were accusing him of. I'll give you a little flavor. For instance, uh, in chapter 10, verse one, this is Paul speaking. He says, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you, I, Paul, who am timid when face to face, but bold when away from you. It is sarcastic. It's dripping with sarcasm. Paul, these, these teachers were accusing him of being a coward. They're saying, yeah, you know, Paul, he's a coward. He's face-to-face uh, -face with you. He's a pushover. He's a cream puff. But when he's not here, he writes real big and talks real big. In verse 2, they accuse the apostle Paul of being worldly, if you can imagine that. They say that he lived by standards of the world. Crazy. Verse 7, they accuse him of only being superficially attached to Christ. In 10, 12, they say, you're really just a second-class servant of the Lord Jesus. This is ridiculous. And this is why Paul responds with this. He says, we can't compare with those who commend themselves or measure themselves by themselves. What Paul's saying is these guys were writing their own resume and then co-signing it. They were saying how great they were and they would substantiate it by their own words. Paul says, how can I compare that someone that compares themselves with themselves? And I know, it can be a danger for me, and I think for us, it's a trap we can fall into when we compare what we're doing for the Lord by our own standards. It's, it's not smart. It's not smart. And Paul says this about this. In verse 18, Paul says, for it is not 
the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. The Lord will commend you and I. And, you know, I'm not saying that every now and again, we don't need a pat on the back. We do, but let the Lord do it. The Lord will actually bring someone into your life and you'll know to be of the Lord and you'll receive just what you need. But remember this, we are all gonna stand before the Lord in the last judgment where our works will be put before him. Some will last, some won't last, but ultimately the Lord will judge what we do. We need to be content with that. So in verse 11, these super apostles get even worse. They take it to the next level. They claim that they're more Jewish than Paul. Can you believe that? More Jewish, right? Uh, They say that, uh, you know, we're descendants of Abraham. You're not. What? They say that we've served Christ way more than you. And all these things are foolish. Paul has done all those things and more. He's all that. But Paul doesn't want to engage in these foolish comparisons. If you look at these three chapters, you'll see Paul use the word foolish quite a bit. But Paul puts an end to this. At the end of chapter 11, just before I started in 12, in verse 30, Paul puts everything into perspective. He says, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Hey, that's kind of rare these days. You give someone a chance to speak, and especially in front of the crowd, they have a way of outlining their strengths. They want to emphasize anything but their weaknesses. Paul does the opposite. And if you look at that in chapter 11, verse 30, right after he talks about his weaknesses, he talks about that humiliating experience in Damascus. He's preaching, sharing the word. He had to escape through a hole in the wall, be let down with this basket, then run for his life because he was gonna be killed. Not exactly a ministry success. Um, I, I don't know if I'd even share that. I, you know, if someone asked me, oh, you know, uh, how, did, how did your last experience go when you were ministering to people? I don't know if I'd share that one, but Paul goes right there. It goes right there for a reason. I think in the final analysis, Paul realizes that he's dealing with a group, uh, and I'll call them hyper-spiritual people. Have you ever known a hyper-spiritual person? I have. Um, These particular folks claim that they could take people into different dimensions with God. Wow, can you imagine that? They claim that, that they could show you how to discover the hidden things of God. The problem is they were actually working against the apostle and what the gospel preaches. They were diametrically opposed. Uh, This is why Paul needed to respond in some way. This is why we have what we have in front of us. He didn't like the fact, he really didn't, they had to lower himself to this level. And that's why he says, I am really speaking like a fool. He didn't like to do it. But The fact remains, as we get in verse 12, and as you heard, and I'll read parts of it again, the crucial area in which these false teachers, these super apostles were hammering Paul in is in spiritual experiences. These teachers claim to have these just crazy experiences. And I don't know, in my own life, spiritual pride is always ugly, but I think it's worse when a man or a woman takes a gift 
they've received from God and misuses it. Whether it's some kind of blessing God has given them, maybe a personal word to their heart, maybe a loving touch, maybe a special encounter with God, they use it to brag or draw attention to themselves. I'll tell you what, in the realm of spiritual experiences, if there were ever an area Paul could play the ace, it's right here with this spiritual experience. Paul needs to address these wise guys, but he needs to be careful, and he says so. So what I'd like to do, let me take another look at verse 12 with you. Let me read verses one through six, but I'd like you to hear it through the introduction that I gave that Paul is responding back to these guys and watch how meticulous and careful he is. Verse one through six again. I must go on boasting, although there's nothing to be gained. I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise. He heard inexpressible things, things that a man is not permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself, except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain so that no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do. So do you notice Paul speaks of himself in the third person? This is to show ultimate humility. He says that he was taken to the third heaven, which is the throne room of God himself. In the first century, they would refer to the heavens. They had three heavens. The first heaven was where the birds fly. We can see the first heaven right there. Second heaven was where the stars and the moon and the galaxies were. The third heaven was the actual dwelling place of God. Paul was taken there. And just, I read some commentators and uh, I, I think they, they hit the nail on the head. He said that Paul was ushered to heaven in a way where he saw the triune Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He saw the cherubim and seraphim going around the throne. He saw the saints that had died previously that were in heaven. He got the full show. And that's why it says, and Paul says, hey, these extraordinary things, I'm not permitted to say anything about that. And some translate and say things that may not be uttered. I think partly because the human vocabulary does not lend itself to describe such miraculous things. I think that's part of it. But I think more of it is that Paul knew that God gave that personally to him. That was for him, not for anybody else. And look at the timing. I, I've never really thought about this, but look at the timing. He says 14 years ago. So this was before he ever took a missionary trip. This is before his ministry really kicked off. And as you know, the apostle Paul traveled farther and suffered more than any of the other apostles. So I think this was God giving this dear man a miraculous vision to sustain him 
when things were going all wrong. And I think we need that in our life. Have you ever had a, a, an experience with God? Maybe even uh, when you came to him. I know that I have kind of a, a wild conversion story, but now and again, I have to reference that. And I'm all, wow, did that really happen? Yeah, God, that was really you. That gives me energy, power to go on when I don't feel the presence of God. And believe me, Paul went through it. So this crazy, cool, miraculous vision was given to him for that reason. And I really think it was near and dear to Paul's heart. Again, he knew that God gave that only to him. And again, dear friends, we can learn from this. We can learn from this. There will be times in your life when God will touch you. And maybe some of those times, you should just take those to heaven with you. You don't say anything to anyone about them. They are personal between you and God. They're nobody else's business. They're not meant for public consumption. They're not meant for Christian TV or to sign a book deal or go on a speaking tour. And I'm sure we've all seen teachers whose entire ministry is to exploit the supernatural. I think that's a travesty. Any supernatural experience that God brings you is obviously a gift. It's a gift from God. You didn't do anything to conjure it up or apply for it. So you should not use it as a mechanism to show others how spiritual you are. It's a gift. It's a gift. And Paul didn't want to do that. That's why he says in verse 6, listen to what Paul says in verse 6. He says, so that no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I say or do. That is so good. It's what we say and we do. So I, I think this is, at least I don't want to be judged on, oh, these visions that Jeff Clay had, these great things that he saw. I want to be thought of or judged on what I say and what I do. And I think I, I think God has plenty in that for us to do. Now, let me do this again. Let me go back and read verses six through 10, because here's where the crux of it is. This is Paul's main point. Listen, in light of what I just said. Well, let, let me start in verse seven. To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my powers made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So Paul shares this great truth about being strong in weakness. But what the heck is this thorn? What is this thorn that Paul had? Boy, there's been a lot of books written on that. Um, I think that some of us might think that it's like a rosebush thorn, like this small little thorn. But the original Greek comes writing to our rescue right here. The word that Paul used is scolops. That was used to describe an, an object as big as a death stake or something that they would impale someone on. This is a huge thing. It's not a little, little deal. And I'll say this, having that in mind, this thorn, this, this overwhelming pain, 
it was more than just a mere annoyance. It generated enough agony that was equal to the degree of glory Paul saw in his revelation. So he has this radical revelation. He gets something just as bad or just as strong on the wrong side of it. That's what God did. That's what God did. And we don't know exactly what the thorn was, but I can say this. Also by the verbiage, Paul said he was in constant pain, not just once in a while. And honestly, I'm grateful. And I think it's helpful that Paul doesn't say exactly what it was because maybe some of us, they're going through stuff. If Paul would have said, well, it's these migraines or my back or I have depression, maybe we would not apply this teaching to ourselves because we would say, oh, unless I have back pain or a migraine depression, this doesn't apply to me. It's a good thing Paul didn't because it applies to every one of us, this verse. See, Paul's point was not the content of the thorn, but the intent. Not content, but intent. You see, the intent was humility. This thorn was used and meant to keep Paul humble. And again, the word in the Greek for conceited is to be lifted up. This thorn was used to deflate his ego, to, to let the air out of the balloon because Boy, if we had this remarkable experience, I think, you know, subconsciously, we would become proud too. God knew exactly what was going on. But let me ask you this, and I think this is something we're thinking about. Was it the Lord or was it Satan that gave him this? Who was it? Who gave him this thorn? Well, let's look at the text. The text says very plainly, it was a messenger of Satan. And we all know the devil loves to harass God's people. So I think we can safely say it was a devil. But look at the intent of the thorn. It was to create power and humility in Paul's life. The devil doesn't want that. God wants that. That sounds like a work of God to me. So what the heck? Here we have Satan's purpose sandwiched within God's sovereign will. See, I call it a mysterious overlay. God's divine sovereignty overlays everything. And every satanic activity, every satanic event, God puts within his sovereign purposes. And that should bring us some comfort. You see, we see this all through the Bible, but I picked one example that I think outlines this the best. It's in Acts 2.23 and it references the most evil act that has ever taken place on earth and will ever take place, and that's the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ, by far the most evil act that's ever taken place. Listen to what Peter says about this in Acts 2. He's talking to the crowd after he preaches. He says, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Wait, God uses wicked men and wicked acts for his purpose? Yes, he does, without a doubt. Pray into that. I guess Paul knew what he's talking about in Romans 8, 28. God really does use all things for the good, doesn't he? And then the text says that Paul pleaded with the Lord three times to take this thorn away. The verb in the Greek, it's parakaleo. A lot of you guys are familiar with that. It's not simply a request 
or asking a question, it is the most intense request a person can make. Parakaleo pleaded like with everything in him. He pleaded. And the fact, and this is beautiful when I, when I discovered this and, and put it together, the fact that Paul references, I went to the Lord three times and pleaded, it is meant to draw us back to the Lord Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane where he went three times and asked the Lord to take the cup of suffering of the crucifixion away. Remember, he had to wake up his buddies three times. He went back for three times. It's meant to draw us right there. And so where Paul is right now, Paul, Paul sees two ways forward, two ways. Number one, God can take the thorn and let him continue with his ministry. Or number two, God could let him keep the thorn and he's gonna be crippled in, in his ministry and kind of put on the sideline because it's overwhelming. You see, but the Lord had a third option, didn't he? The Lord had a third option. The Lord would leave the thorn, but give Paul this divine power as a result of it. The Lord would lead the, leave the thorn in him and give him this grace and power that he never would have had had he not had the thorn. God's ways are always best, aren't they? They're always best. And when we look at the word grace here, it's not referring to the objective forgiveness of sins like we read in Romans. It's used completely different, not necessarily the forgiveness of sins. Paul uses the word grace to describe God's presence, his sustaining power, his comfort, his emboldening. This is what grace has meant. And when God says, my grace is sufficient for you, what that means is God is saying, I am sufficient for you. I am sufficient for you. You don't need anything else. And the word grace is also so useful in that God wanted to assure Paul that this could not be earned. You can't earn grace, can you? This was God's sovereign choice to give Paul this. You, you can't earn grace. And it's clarified even more when, it, when God says, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Grace is the channel for divine power. Grace is the channel for divine power. We don't wanna miss this. It's, it, it, it's not Paul's strength, it's God's strength. You know what Paul's contribution to this was? His weakness. That's all he could contribute, his weakness. Weakness is exactly what God needs. And for us, dear brothers and sisters, weakness is exactly what God needs. You see, it's a mystery of authentic Christianity. It's a total mystery that our weakness attracts God. It doesn't repel him, it attracts God. Our inadequacies, our incapabilities, things that we naturally fear, that's where God loves to dwell. He loves to dwell there. That brings me a great deal of comfort because I got a lot of inadequacies, just saying. Ask Robin, she knows. Um, so Paul had this amazing revelation that brought him way up high. Then this other revelation that brought him way down low. But the second revelation changed the source of Paul's boasting. Paul learned firsthand where God's power resides. He learned that his frailty ignited God's grace. So he built his identity, 
not on power, but on weakness. He built his identity on weakness. In verse nine, it says this. Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. Again, Paul's use of the ancient Greek is masterful. The word for rest in the Greek is episkinu. That is the root word for tabernacle in the Old Testament. Remember the tabernacle, the portable temple where God was said to reside, he did reside there. So basically, Paul is showing us there's a new dispensation. It's almost like Paul's saying, in my weakness, I have God tabernacling with me everywhere I go. God has set up shop in my weakness. It's a beautiful use of the word. And it's a new dispensation. Remember the Old Testament and the tabernacle? You could not enter if, if you were weak or sinful. In fact, there was only the high priest going the Holy of Holies and the other priests in the other areas. But you were not accessing God's power and presence, weak and sinful as you are. But now it is the weakness of sinners that draws God's power. That's wonderful. Paul doesn't want us to miss that. And then Paul ends here, and I'm, I'm headed for home, but uh, Paul ends here in verse 10 by listing these five categories of, of situations that would, should render him frail or vulnerable. In the original language, Paul lists them in increasing intensities. He first says in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in calamities. Some translate and say difficulties. But weakness, the first word he uses, and I think this is important, weakness just kind of denotes uh, not being strong, if I can say like that, like we're all weak in things. But the last word, calamities or difficulties, this denotes oh, an overwhelming negative experience, a devastating circumstance, a circumstance that's gonna change your life forever. So Paul does this and he goes intensity, but he says this, doesn't make sense until you, and, until you get where Paul's coming from. Paul says he delights or is well pleased with these things. What the heck, he delights or is well pleased. And again, I wanna be clear, he's not saying that they feel good to him. Please don't think that Paul is a masochist. He's not saying that these things feel good, but he knows that these things, all these negative circumstances, calamities, trials of all kinds, they open him up to heaven's blessing and God's strength. Now that's what he delights in, that's what he loves. And on a personal note here, I've experienced the, this kind of power and blessing of God, not only personally, but corporately. Can I say that? And I think maybe some of you have too, corporately. You see guys, as we go through these difficulties as a church, whatever they may be, the church family is strengthened. It bonds us together to go through difficulties like nothing else will. No, they don't feel good, but in hindsight, I look back and I go, thank God. I've got a relationship with that guy or that family that I never would have had had we not traveled this road of heartache together. It's a privilege. I can't tell you the relationships that I've shared with men as they struggle, as I struggle, it's supernatural. And why? Because the Holy Spirit is right in the middle of it. That's why. 
The Holy Spirit is right there. It's powerful. It's powerful. See, where there's pain and hardship, God amplifies his grace. Where there's pain and hardship, God amplifies his grace. He lets you enter into a relationship with him that you never would have before. Not a chance, not a chance. That's the avenue to enter into that kind of relationship. So I have a friend that found himself unexpectedly taking care of his wife, his dear wife, who is diagnosed with an illness that is not going away. It's, it's not going away. He needs to care for her 24-7. It altered his life radically. And he'll freely admit to you that this situation is more than he can handle, and he's not sure what the future holds. He will tell you that. But I'll tell you what, when I pray with this man, there's a power and a presence of God that I know nothing of. He's in another league, another category. There's a power and a presence of God that I know nothing of. The filling of the Holy Spirit is palpable with this gentleman. You see, that situation, when I think for, it terrifies me. It absolutely terrifies me. But this man is living proof that when fear and frailty overwhelm us, God's grace will overtake us. Where fear and frailty overwhelm us, God's grace will overtake us. And in all of this, I, I need to say this, a disclaimer, dear brothers and sisters, I'm not emphasizing or not saying that we should avoid I guess, exercising areas that we're strong in because Paul himself in 1 Corinthians talks about spiritual gifts and he asks us to step into those, doesn't he? But, but here, we need to do this with humility and giving honor to God, not ourselves. Be strong in the giftings God's given you, but give honor to God. If you're anything like me, my weaknesses way outnumber anything I might be good in. This is why I think this is so helpful. Um, let me do this. I'm about done. I'm gonna ask the prayer team to come up and I'm just gonna share two really quick things. If the prayer team would be so kind to come up. Um, so what I'd like you guys to take home is this. When life goes into meltdown, when your feet, when our feet are swept out from under us by a life-changing event, don't throw in the towel. Please, don't throw in the towel. Take it to the Lord, because that moment of calamity is where the power of Christ lives. That moment of, of calamity, of devastation, is where the power of Christ lives. God's presence will strengthen us. He will tabernacle with us. He will rest upon us. And I'll say this personally, I would rather be in a valley experience with God than a mountaintop experience without him. So Father, I, I just thank you for your word, Lord God. Let us, Lord, let us absorb that. Let us live this. Let us give you glory for the things in life that we don't understand, Lord God. And let us be a beacon of your hope. And lastly, Lord, I, I do pray for those folks in Maui and Lahaina. Lord God, give them supernatural blessing. Let the news media be as quick to 
film and talk about that as they are the devastation. Let us see your hand. Give Brian Nelson just great, great authority. Lord God, give Michael wisdom and let us all come together to help these dear folks. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Here's the deal. Maybe some of you are going through some stuff. Come up and pray. If you're not, that's fine too. Come up for any reason, but come up and get some prayer if you'd like. You are dismissed. We'll see you next Sunday by God's grace. Thanks for listening to the Ranch Church Podcast. For more information and service times, go to ranchchurch.com.